You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting live for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Friday, May 22, 2020. In today's show, WFHB correspondents Jasmine White and Braden Lentz break down racist comments from Indiana lawmaker Jim Lucas. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner covers a lawsuit against the U.S. Forest Service for approving the plan for the Houston South Forest Restoration and Management Project. But first, your local headlines. Bloomington City Council discussed appropriating funds for the Sayers Road multi-use path, intersection improvements, and repavement of College Mall Road. Clerk Nicole Bolden presented the ordinance during their May 20th meeting. This ordinance appropriates an additional $900,000 from the local income tax special distribution fund transfers $1,731,205 from the Motor Vehicle Highway Fund to the Restricted Motor Vehicle Highway Fund and transfers $386,000 from Classification 2 Supplies to Classification 4 Capital Outlays in the Cumulative Capital Development Fund. The appropriation of the $900,000 will be used for part of the in-dot local match for the Sarah Road Multi-Use Path and Intersection Improvement Project. The transfer of $386,000 will be used for the College Mall Road Paving Project. The transfer of $1,731,205 from the MPH to the MPH Restricted Fund is the result of a state examiner directive, which implements House Enrolled Act 1002-2017 and House Enrolled Act 1290-2018. These acts restrict local use of at least 50% of the distributions from the state motor vehicle account for the construction, reconstruction, and preservation of highways. State examiner directive requires counties, cities, and towns to create this new MPH-restricted subfund to better manage an account of these statutorily restricted funds. Councilmember Kate Rosenbarger said the Council Transportation Committee had concerns of repaving College Mall Road without including bike lanes. Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith asked Public Works Director Adam Wason about cumulative capital development fund uses. Given our transportation plan's emphasis on multimodal projects, I wonder why when we had this extra money, we didn't think of implementing some multimodal bicycle pedestrian improvements instead of using it for road improvements? Uh, the main reason is, uh, Councilmember, I think the answer to your question mainly uh, lies in that we didn't know we would be getting a $382,000 grant from INDOT. Um, you know, we apply for these things in the fall. We wait several months until we uh, find out if we're going to get a grant fund, uh, fund uh, a project funded through the grants. And so when you have the opportunity to leverage uh, this funding, you need to come up with a match. And so this seemed like the perfect area, uh, given our mild winter, given our supply lines were uh, healthy, that we could then uh, utilize these funds to leverage the uh, several hundred thousand dollars through the Community Crossing Grant Program. 
Wayson said the repaving budget could not have funded both the College Mall repavement and previously planned 2020 projects. He said the project is pavement maintenance, not a redesign. He said bike or pedestrian lanes could be added in a later project. Councillor Matt Flaherty asked City Engineer Neil Copper about adding bike lanes during the repavement. For the majority of the street, uh, the, the existing road is wide enough that we can keep all the same number and configuration of motor vehicle lanes, simply make them a little bit narrower but still within our standards, uh, and install a traditional painted bicycle lane on the street. Uh, not for the entire length of it, um, the, the northern portion in particular is narrower, the width uh, changes quite a bit on that street. Um, and I also have to caveat it that you know, we haven't done a, a, a detailed design effort on the street yet. Um, not that that would take a, a terribly long time. We've done kind of initial analysis and believe it's feasible for the majority, but we haven't dug fully into the details yet. During public comment, County Councilor Jeff McKim said delaying paving projects causes a dramatic increase in cost. Council member Stephen Volan proposed to send the ordinance back to the Transportation Committee for further deliberation. Wayson said the grant money would be lost if the project is not approved by August 1st. Council members voted against sending the appropriation back to committee. Piedmont Smith said the dollar amounts don't support the transportation plan. So this is um, really essential as we move forward. Uh, it's great that, you know, the state does give grants. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of them are just for car-centered transportation. Um, but as we find matching funds for those grants, we should consider which funds, uh, you know, our priorities as a city. And right now, those priorities do not look like they are balanced towards what we say in our transportation plan and what we say in our comprehensive plan is a focus on non-vehicular transportation. Um, so the funding, as we have reviewed this evening, just for repaving is over $2 million. That's not, not including these grants. Um, and the accumulated budget for sidewalks is $1.3 million. So there's definitely a disconnect here between um, what our plans say we prioritize and what our community has said it wants to prioritize and what the dollars are in our budgets. Piedmont Smith said the council needs to work to support bicycle and pedestrian travel. Council members approved the ordinance on a 6-3 vote with Volan, Flaherty, and Rosenberger voting no. Up next, WFHB correspondent Alex Dieter reports on a survey at Indiana University regarding sexual misconduct. We turn to Alex Dieter for more. IU recently released the results of a 2019 campus climate survey intended to gain students' input about sexual misconduct and other related issues. The survey was the second part of a survey launched in 2014 and was conducted at eight of the nine IU campuses. Director of Institutional Equity and University Title IX Coordinator Emily Springston said they collected more demographic information in the 2019 survey, such as the experiences of students of color and transgender students. The survey was emailed to a random sample of half the IU student body in February and March of 2019. Just over 3,000 responses were submitted, representing about 15% of the students invited to participate and 7% of the total IU undergraduate and graduate student populations. According to the Indiana Daily Student, 
co-organizer of the group Shatter the Silences March in August of 2018, and IU junior who worked on the analysis and update of the Student Code of Conduct, Celeste Coughlin, said she feels the survey can be improved in many ways, including increasing the total number of students surveyed and narrowing who is asked certain questions. Two of the key findings in the survey were that 82% of the surveyed IU population think sexual misconduct is a problem on campus, while 92% of this population think sexual misconduct is a problem throughout society. 26% of surveyed undergraduate women and 5% of undergraduate men reported experiences with sexual harassment since coming to IU. When compared to the 2014 survey, this does represent a decrease in reported sexual harassment from 35% to 26%. In addition, the survey collected data on students who experienced non-consensual sexual touching, and when compared to the 2014 survey, there was an increase for undergraduate women from 29% to 42%. According to the IDS, Springston said one of the bright spots of the survey was how 74% of the participants said they think they can do something about sexual misconduct. She said this data supports a reflection of IU Bloomington's work in active bystander education, saying they are teaching students not only how to prevent and speak up about sexual misconduct, but also how to be supportive with someone who had such experiences. In addition, she said another positive was the number of students who spoke with friends about their experiences. According to the IDS, Coughlin said IU can do better with its educational programming, saying there are currently little to no consequences for students who do not attend the workshops. The sexual assault educational programs IU currently conducts include a musical program at New Student Orientation, My Student Body Online Training, It's On Us Alcohol and Consent Bystander Intervention Workshop, and IU Police Department's Rape Aggression Defense Course, which teaches basic self-defense for women. If you or someone you know is in danger, call or text 911 right away. For WFHB, I'm Alex Dieterer. The Monroe County Commissioners approved the removal of surplus vehicles from the Sheriff and Highway Departments. Administrator Angie Purdy said the vehicles were no longer fit for use during their May 20th meeting. It's a resolution to, uh, for the Sheriff's Department to be able to dispose of two vehicles um, through the surplus process. They actually have to remove the decals and the police equipment on those. Um, they were not considered of enough value for a trade-in. They do have one vehicle that is um, available to be traded in, and thus we would get a higher um, return on that. Purdy listed the Highway Department's surplus materials. That includes a 1996 International 4700 truck, a 2005 Ford Expedition, snowway snow plows, a Western V snowplow with mounting bracket and controls, and a Corn Pro UT14H trailer. Purdy said anyone interested in the surplus material should reach out to the highway department for more information. Monroe County officials and various environmental groups have sued the U.S. Forest Service for approving the plan for the Houston South Forest Restoration and Management Project. WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner discusses the details of the conflict and how the plan will affect Bloomington. The lawsuit filed Wednesday accuses the Forest Service of violating multiple environmental acts, including contamination of Monroe County's drinking water and the risk of involving endangered species. The plan involves the burning of 13,500 acres and clear-cutting 4,000 acres in the Hoosier National Forest. 
The forest provides a diverse ecosystem, making up about half of the total public forest land in Indiana. The project will take place specifically in the Lake Monroe watershed, which is a 441-square-mile drainage area for Lake Monroe. This area is a mere two miles away from Monroe County's primary source for drinking water. Bloomington has been using the lake as their primary source since 1967. The U.S. Forest Service received 117 pages of comments from the public last year when they published their plan online. Many environmental groups protested against the plan as well. However, they decided to move forward with it despite the protesting. According to the USDA, the project was created in an effort to treat vegetation while conduct management activities to improve forest health and sustainability of the oak hickory ecosystems. The USDA also hopes that it will improve wildlife habitat. District Ranger for the Hoosier National Forest and officer for the project, Michelle Paduani, said in an emailed statement to Indy Star in January, quote, We are deficit in both old forests and young forests across the landscape, both of which are highly important habitat for a variety of wildlife, end quote. The U.S. Forest Service has steadily said to the public that from their environmental assessment, the project would have no significant impact on the lake. The arguments made from environmental groups and the city include contamination of drinking water from worsened erosion of the soil surrounding the lake and susceptibility to toxic algal blooms, which could impact swimmers and lakegoers. The attorney representing Monroe County's Board of Commissioners and other members, William Lawton, spoke on behalf of the project and said, quote, Our concern here is that the Forest Service has downplayed or ignored the environmental impacts in order to make the argument that they're not significant, end quote. The city may also have to pay the price of treating the drinking water if it does get contaminated. Also argued is the habitats in the Lake Monroe watershed that hold at least two species listed under the Endangered Species Act. These species include the Indiana bat and the northern long-eared bat. The northern long-eared bat was discovered and recorded just last year by the U.S. Forest Alliance in efforts to bring awareness. Lawton stated, quote, In my mind, and I think in my client's mind, it confers on the Forest Service sort of a responsibility as a good neighbor to think about its impact on Lake Monroe, end quote. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. Earlier this month, IUPUI's Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health encouraged students and Hoosiers around Indiana to apply to be a contact tracer through the Indiana State Health Department. WFHB correspondent Jake Jacobson tells us more about what contact tracing is and how it can help. As Indiana businesses and public areas reopen amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the need for safety precautions is more important than ever. Common forms of personal protective equipment, or PPE, like face masks and gloves help protect individuals, especially those who are high risk. Sanitation and proper handwashing techniques help prevent the spread of COVID-19 on a smaller scale. Things like contact tracing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19 on a much larger scale. Contact tracing is a process in which public health workers reach out to a patient who is diagnosed with or shows symptoms of a disease. The public health worker then contacts everyone the patient has been in contact with for the max length of the contagious period. Through contact tracing, Healthcare workers hope to be able to stop chains of transmission by identifying and isolating potential carriers before they can continue to spread the disease. 
Shandy Durth is the director of the Undergraduate Epidemiology Program at the IUPUI School of Public Health. Durth explains the importance of contact tracing, calling it, quote, crucial work that will be the backbone of controlling the spread until we have a proven, effective vaccine in place that is widely available and distributed around the world. Even if the U.S. is fully vaccinated, there could still be additional viruses introduced due to travel, and therefore, there could be a need for contact tracers to target this disease for a long time. End quote. Dearth points out that contact tracing is not a new concept to public health. Contact tracing is used to track and control measles outbreaks and was used to help control the spread of severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, in the early 2000s. Dearth notes that the lack of an effective vaccine for COVID-19 means that the need to ramp up contact tracing teams is much higher than in the past. For countries that are successfully and safely reopening, like South Korea, contact tracing was a crucial part in stopping the spread of COVID-19. The Indiana State Department of Health's efforts to create a contact tracing call center will help prevent the spread of COVID-19. However, as Dearth continues, contact tracing is one piece of a larger process that involves more testing and better isolation have an impact, but the more testing we have available, the more uh, effective the contact tracing pieces. So we definitely still have room for improvement. We're adding additional uh, testing capability. I think right now a lot of the sites are still only testing those symptomatic people who go to seek a test. Um, and what we saw with the recent IU sampling study that was published this week is that um, up to 40% of people who are positive don't report having any symptoms. So obviously a lot of people can have this, not have any symptoms and are out there spreading it. So contact tracing um, is a piece of it, but it can't be the end-all be-all. We still have to keep up the testing, increase testing, increase awareness, keep up the social distancing. We need to do more communication about the need for to wear a mask. Um, and that's why you're not seeing everything open up all at once. It's not a flipping the switch situation. We had to take very slow steps with this. According to the ISDH, Indiana currently has 209 COVID-19 testing sites, including four in Monroe County. Of the 6.7 million Hoosiers living in Indiana, the ISDH reports that over 200,000 have been tested, less than 1% of the population. Eligibility for testing at Indiana test sites is still limited, and it's not exactly clear when someone is eligible for testing. For example, CVS pharmacies around Indiana, including one in Bloomington, have opened up drive through test sites at certain stores. On their website, you are prompted to answer a few questions to see if you qualify for testing. The website notes that testing is limited due to limited supplies. Monroe Hospital's listing on the ISDH website lists the following requirements. That you are an essential or healthcare worker, that you are symptomatic, or that you have been exposed to COVID-19. When contacted about what this requirement list means, an employee of Mineral Hospital said that the most clear way to determine whether or not someone qualifies for a COVID-19 test is by using the IU Health virtual screening app. No one single action, minus a reliable vaccine, is enough to fully stop the spread of COVID-19. An equally important step towards prevention is still keeping yourself safe and minimizing risk of exposure. Dearth says that sometimes the safest option is to continue staying home. Just because something is open and you can go do something doesn't mean you necessarily should. So think about yourself. Think about any uh, of your family members or friends who might be in that vulnerable population. 
So if it's really risky for you to possibly um, get coronavirus and then transmit it on to one of your loved ones, I would really hesitate still from going into uh, some places where you're going to be around lots of other members of the public unless you necessarily have to. So take these steps very slow so that you can protect other people around you. According to Dirth, the ISDH plans to hire around 500 contact tracers. In an email sent out to people who applied for the contact tracing position through the IUPUI's website, the ISDH confirms this, stating that Maximus, the company contracted to manage the call center, has already hired 500 people. The first wave of contact tracers have been trained and started last week. The remote call center is open seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. For WFHB, I'm Jake Jacobson. The NAACP called for the resignation of Indiana Representative Jim Lucas after he posted a racist meme on his personal Facebook page. Lucas was removed from two committees and lost his position as vice chair on the Standing Committee on Government Reduction. WFHB correspondent Jasmine White breaks down why Lucas's comments are considered racist. Also, WFHB junior correspondent Braden Lentz provides some commentary on Lucas's comments. For more, we turn to Jasmine White and Braden Lentz. Indiana Representative Jim Lucas has been removed from committees after posting a racist meme. For starters, many may not understand why it was considered racist. Many may also be confused on the definition of racism and how to differentiate that definition from prejudice. Racism is the act of one race inherently having the power to feel or be superior over another race. This includes the act of systematic oppression, thereof, lack of resources or access to education, money, etc. Prejudice is preformed biased opinions about one because of race, ethnicity, etc. Representative Lucas's meme was described as black children in diapers dancing with the caption, we gonna get free money. Representative Lucas says he's seen no problem with it and that is how he and others talk, he told the Indy Star. I don't see anything wrong with it. People who want to find racism are going to find racism in anything. A black woman who was running as a Democrat against U.S. Representative Greg Pence in the heavily Republican 6th Congressional District, Jan Lee Lake, was among several people who says Lucas's post this week was racist. She says, it makes me want to cry, and that's the truth. I'm just amazed. He's a leader in our state. This is not Indiana. It's not the best of Indiana, certainly, and it's sickening. Lucas posted the meme prior to Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi unveiling a new coronavirus aid package totaling more than $3 trillion. This was considered racist due to its highlight of poverty and oppression with lack of resources. Lucas's meme highlighted the superiority of a race with money and control being able to get through this hard time. As a representative, many may have seen it as inappropriate and inconsiderate. When we have more updates, we will update our listeners. Thank you for listening. For WFHB, I'm Jasmine White. Racism. According to the Webster's Dictionary, racism means, quote, a belief or doctrine that inherent differences among the various human racial groups determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others or that a particular group of people is inferior to the others, end quote. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, we must live together as brothers or perish as fools. His words echoing off church pews in Alabama to the lakes at 
the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., history should have taught us a thing or two about racism. Unfortunately, we still hear about hate and bullying on Facebook, fights on the streets, hate and protests on college campuses, and some hate has always been in their hearts. On top of that, the emotional distress Indiana has yet to pass a hate crimes law. As a mixed man with a 50% black identity, I fear my little sister one day will not grasp on the information about our past. I fear that she may make decisions from what she sees on TV and not from her heart. She was four when the Ferguson riots happened. She was nine when Charlottesville happened. And she was one month old when President Obama walked across that stage at Lincoln Park in Chicago. There was once a Jewish mother whose family survived the Holocaust. At a nursing home dining area, she feared a second wave of racism would clog up the city streets from Charlottesville, Virginia to the banks of Tennessee. She said, quote, He who learns but does not think is lost. He who thinks but does not learn is in great danger. End quote. The post uploaded on the social media by State Representative Jim Lewis shows today's brass assumption of women and minorities through an obsession with bigotry and white loathing. A white man saying those comments is like hearing thunder roar. His memes were targeted not just to African Americans, but it damages women who were sexually molested and each caption bleeds a new battle scar. Quote, Want to know who loves you more, your wife or your dog? Lock them both in your trunk and see who's happy to see you when you let them go. End quote. From spitting at female marchers who Lucas says need, quote, participation medals not in liquid form, end quote, to posting a photo of two nooses from a Texas jail to bring awareness to publicly executing death row inmates should ring some red flags. His comments show anti-Semitism and an improper education shown today by white politicians to white parents at the kitchen table. Representative Lucas shows why Indiana and his comments, like his on social media, can keep you deep underwater. One example of white loathing comes from his comments on an August 2019 post from Wish TV 8 in Indianapolis, showing a display of two nooses hooked to a stake used in the Texas prison system for hanging or lynching. According to the NAACP, quote, lynchings were becoming a popular way to resolve some of the anger that whites had in relation to the free blacks, end quote. From 1882 to 1968, there were 4,743 lynchings in the United States. Of these statistics of people that were lynched, 3,446 people were black. Blacks lynched accounted for 72.7% of people lynched. These numbers are staggering, but it could be higher with some lynchings not recorded. Out of this 4,743 people lynched, only 1,297 white people were lynched. That was 27.3%. Out of all lynchings, 79% of African Americans were lynched in the South. According to the NAACP, quote, Mississippi had the highest lynchings from 1882 to 1968 with 541. Georgia was second with 531, and Texas was third at 493, end quote.
Most famously, on August 7, 1930, in Marion County, Indiana, a mob of 10 to 15,000 white people abducted three young black men, including Thomas Shipp, James Cameron, and Abram Smith. The night before the lynchings, a white 23-year-old man named Claudie Dieter rushed by his fiancée, 19-year-old Mary Ball, to the hospital after a group of black men assaulted his wife and murdered him. He would die from his injuries and the men were charged with sexual assault and murder. Ship and Smith were hanged by a group of white mobsters who barged into the prison to capture the two men. Cameron escaped a free man when an officer confessed his innocence. The image of two black men hung from a tree with a group of white men and women. Gleeful to see this pain is one of the most iconic photos of any lynching in the United States. In the states of Indiana, Colorado, California, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming, lynching occurred to more white people than blacks. From a 21-year-old man, Sean Reed, who was shot by two Indianapolis police officers after a high-speed chase proceeding to joke about another open casket, to two white men in Georgia shooting 25-year-old Ahmed Arbery during his daily run, to a white father named Tom Bertel at a Salem, Michigan school board meeting asking an older Mexican gentleman named Adrian Irola to quote, then why didn't you stay in Mexico? This is not just Representative Lewis causing the issues. This is a national issue. How lynching and racism tied to politics can clearly be seen in our textbooks called history. Our politicians can do some research on how to greatly make minority communities stronger. They sure don't need to act black with chains and red bandanas. But these politicians can touch paths, bring new laws to end racial segregations, and partake in social experiments, for example, Jane Elliott's brown eyes and blue eyes experiment. To look into the mirror and see what being a minority feels like. One woman said... Quote, quit worrying about Iraq and worry more about the underserving minorities in America. End quote. And for WFHB, I am Braden Lentz. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our features were produced by Alex Dieterer, Katrine Bruner, Jake Jacobson, Jasmine White, and Braden Lentz. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as other WFHB programming online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Kite Line, a program amplifying the voices of those within Indiana's prison system. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. 
Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 